Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Resilience Think Tank. This month, we are tackling something really hard. We're talking about how do you navigate change with a group of people when some number of those people refuse to agree or even consider that a change might be necessary. As a matter of fact, they often deny there's a problem to begin with. Before we begin today, I'd like to mention that we were supposed to have three amazing guests, and I'm really excited to introduce you to the two who are here. Dr. Andy Nowak, who was meant to join us today, reached out to me this morning. His mentor, who was also a teacher of mine in medical school and in residency, she passed away last night, Dina Hofkosh. Dina was an incredible adolescent medicine physician who took care of teens and created new programs and new ways of reaching them and really just handled them and every student she worked with, myself included, with such respect, humor, and wisdom. In my tradition in Judaism, when someone passes away, we take the opportunity, if we can, to learn in their memory. So I'd like to dedicate our time together today to Dina Hofkosh so that we can hope that our learning will somehow elevate her soul. Thanks, everyone. And now what I want to do is talk to you about this really important thing. And I'm going to introduce both of our guests and ask them my first question. So Sharon, I'm going to start with you. Sharon Pillar is the executive director of the Pennsylvania Solar Center, which was created to help nonprofits, businesses, and communities to go solar. Sharon also owns the Hot Earth Collaborative, a consultancy she started 10 years ago to advance clean energy markets. And she co-leads the Renewables Work for PA Solar Industry Coalition with more than 70 companies working together. She served on Pennsylvania Governor Shapiro's energy transition team. Sharon, in your career, I'm guessing you've dealt with a lot of change deniers. Have you, have you noticed any signs when you're introducing an idea that someone is going to be resistant to change? Yeah, this is such a great topic for our field of study here. Obviously, in climate change, I don't, I probably don't even need to talk about that too much. It's pretty obvious. There are a lot of people who deny climate change. And when I started in this work, I was doing climate change outreach. And um, in fact, I was one of Al Gore's trainees for the climate project that he sent and trained all these people to go around the country. Um, in their regions and their communities to talk about what, climate change. What year was that? That was 2008, I believe. So since 2008, you've been out in the country talking to people about climate change. Yes. And then I changed my shifted in that because of really this topic that we're talking about today. <laughs> um because people would come, obviously there are people who care about it and you know they're the low-hanging fruit. They're already there. They want to do more about it. And then people would come who were completely coming just to argue and deny that this is not a problem. We shouldn't be doing it. Um, it was just, I learned a lot by talking to these folks and I could immediately see during a presentation who they were going to be during the whole like half hour presentation, just body language. And I would know what questions were going to come afterwards. And so it was really very interesting to me then to have these conversations with people and really learn about why they were denying um, and what it was about them that, you know, that's what I really wanted to know. Why are they so um, sort of just latching on this denial? And I 
shifted to moving into talking about renewable energy as the solution. And that really shifted the way people were listening to the problem. And so I rarely even talk about climate change anymore. And we can talk more about that later, but um, yeah. So, so it was really, you could tell from body language, that was one of your first tip-offs. Body language and then just um, a whole responses about myths, prop propagating myths that maybe were pretty well known about why it doesn't, or, or so-called research or facts that weren't really true, but using those to back up their um, their argument about why this climate change didn't exist. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Dr. Kevin Chapman is a licensed clinical psychologist and founder and director of the Kentucky Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. Dr. Chapman also serves as the mental health expert for TrueSport, and he and I are on that together. That's a subsidiary for the United States Anti-Doping Agency, USADA, which serves the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. He serves as the team psychologist for the Louisville City Football Club and the Racing Louisville Football Club. Dr. Chapman was the program psychologist for seasons one and two on A&E's hit documentary, 60 Days In. So, Kevin, you have so much experience and so much to bring to this conversation, but I'd like to ask you specifically in the world of sports performance, how can you tell when somebody's going to be resistant to the idea that there's a mental health issue to begin with? Well, I think, Dr. G, it's interesting because the way I can tell in sports performance is pretty consistent with my clinical work. They're really one and the same in the sense that people tend to be pretty defensive and their affect starts to change when there is some sort of denial of a truth, right? So in other words, you find that there's an intense negative emotionality that occurs when you bring up certain topics. And it's interesting, as I was listening to Dr. Biller, I was thinking about a concept in psychology known as the belief perseverance effect. And it's this idea that when people are even faced with overwhelming evidence that's contrary to what they believe, they still cling to previously held beliefs. And that's really interesting, right? Because that kind of explains what Dr. Pillar was saying about you know much of what she's experienced when she's interacted with certain people. And I think that that's what we often see. Many times in a, with mental health in particular, especially with sports performance, there's hyper-masculinity often, depending on who you're interacting with. And there's also this idea that we have a culture where there's only certain emotions that are tolerated, right? Which is, of course, is going to have a kettle effect. And if you hide emotions or suppress them, it backfires paradoxically. It makes the emotion more intense, right? So you said kettle effect. Yeah. Is that when you kind of suppress, suppress, and the steam blows? Yep. And then it blows up. And then all of a sudden, we have an intervention when in reality, we could have had a prevention, right? So that's what I often say. <laughs> I know that speaks your language. But <laughs> I often think of that because in sports in particular, I think that we oftentimes deny that certain emotions are happening and occurring. And in many ways, they're pushed away until they backfire. And then we have an issue. So I would like to ask you, and Sharon, I'm going to come right back to you, and this is not a main question, but it's so important, I think. You talked about that belief perseverance effect. Mm -hmm. How do we know when someone's belief has been integrated into their identity? Do you understand what I'm, what I'm I want to be really clear that what I'm asking is, I have some beliefs like, um, I don't love the taste of cayenne pepper. But if I had a dish that I loved and somebody said there was cayenne pepper in there, I would say, oh, great. Maybe I do like it. But I have the identity that I don't like coffee. 
Indeed. And even if I have something and somebody's like, there's coffee in there, I'll be like, yeah, but you couldn't really taste it. That's why I liked it. Right? We take certain beliefs and we make them a part of our identity. And I'm taking one that, although I know coffee is very important to people, I think might be a little less controversial. Correct. And we make them a part of our identity. And some are just beliefs we've had that are easier to let go of. How can you tell when someone has a belief that they've integrated into their identity so they're going to defend it like they would defend any group that they felt that they were fundamentally a part of? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, um, you know, Debbie, to me, it's this idea in psychology, we essentially thrive on taking nomothetic data or group data and applying it to individual concerns, right? So what we look for are behavioral patterns. You know, you mentioned these things that we would consider to be preferences, right? Like, of course, I was totally offended by you not liking coffee, but that's another conversation. But nonetheless, I say that to say that, you know, that's a preference in one sense, but when we look for people who have patterns of behavior, right, that's when we oftentimes see that it's become a part of their identity because it's consistent. In cognitive psychology, we talk about what we call the cognitive triad. I have an absolute belief about myself, others, and the world around me, and my future. And often when you look at people's absolute beliefs, particularly when it deals with pathology, like I'm worthless, other people are more adequate than I, and my future is pessimistic or bleak, sometimes at a very subconscious level, we're looking for threat cues that confirm my pre-existing belief, right? The one guy looking at me during my speech has a scowl on his face, but there's 300 people smiling, but I'm only paying attention to the one scowl in the room, right? So we look for these patterns that confirm the way we think, and that's how we typically see that it's a part of one's identity is because it's a consistent pattern across settings. That's interesting. Sharon, in your work, did you ever find, do you ever find someone whose beliefs about energy and renewables isn't tied to their identity? Just when you were talking, Kevin, I was just thinking about this um, happening so much. So I live in Pennsylvania and we're a very intense energy state and coal is king here and now natural gas and the communities that were in those fields have a very strong identity about that history and they're very proud of it and and as they should be it, it really fueled the country and um they're very very proud of that and the the threat of losing that is um really does exactly what Kevin was talking about threaten their own personal identity and their place in the world um, thinking and their future, about that and whole their triad. future. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Even though like there's some facts about like natural gas has replaced coal, you know, that is still not what the narrative is. The narrative is that renewables are getting away from coal. And so, right. So those kind of beliefs we see, um, not really based on actually facts, but it's closer to their narrative to hold on to the natural gas than it is even the coal, so or the renewables, I'm sorry. Okay, so what we were talking about when I asked the question, are there any tells or signs? We we're talking about signs that, that the, the thing the person is resistant to isn't just a preference, it's a belief. And so as business leaders, we need to look for people who, either because what we already know about them on our team, you know, this is somebody who believes that outsourcing our graphic design or our marketing or anything, they're really resistant to that because they believe in our culture so much that they need it to be someone who identifies first with our company, who touches anything we do. 
just for an example, that would make it really hard for that person. It wouldn't just be their preference that we handle things in-house. It would be a belief that ties to their identity about what they believe, not just about themselves, but about our company. And we probably don't hear about it in a, it, it probably, we may hear about a preference, but it probably doesn't show up as an obstacle in our change navigation as a team, if something is only a preference, then we can let it go. You know, it's my preference to do it this way, but I hear you, it's cheaper that way, it's faster that way, it turned out better last time, cool. Okay, so now I'd like to go to the second question and Kevin, I'm gonna start with you because this is, I think maybe something that you and I had luckier than Sharon did in our training, something mm -hmm. that we talked about even in training for our field. How do you approach someone who denies the existence of a problem that you're poised to solve? That's a great question. It's a loaded question. It's one I like. Um, and I would say primarily I would begin by disarming the individual that I'm interacting with. Like one thing most anyone on earth dislikes is to be put on the defensive. So I don't blame, I normalize, right? So I think on the one hand, I present information to someone by normalizing their perspective, right? You can agree in principle with anybody's point of view, like in principle, right? I could think of the most heinous things that I would disagree with at the core and still agree in principle, right? So agreeing in principle with someone's perspective is part of it. Well, it makes sense the way, the way, why you think that, right? Uh, if I were you, I could understand why uh, I would come to that conclusion as well, based on your experiences, right? So there's that part. I'd also normalize it and say that many people share that same perspective. And it's not a matter of it being right or wrong. It's a matter of kind of acknowledging that you know we all have our different opinions and perspectives. But I think, Debbie, at the end of the day, the most important element is that I'm going to be very Socratic and asking questions to the individual as opposed to presenting my information, right? So you know, since it's football season, a good example would be, and I play college football, right? So rather than telling someone what a touchdown is, I'd say, well, for instance, if someone caught the ball and they passed the 20-yard line, the 10, and they crossed the pylon and, ref and the referee throws their hands up, what's that called, question mark? A touchdown. Oh, a touchdown. So I really ask questions. What's the evidence that this thought is true? Are you 100% sure that that is an accurate statement, right? Well, what's happened in the past? Could there be a possible another explanation? So I'd ask really inquisitive questions to really get evidence and data for them to present to me in that regard, rather than blame and point the finger and say that they're wrong. So I think that that's an incredible path towards this. And the Socratic method is something that's used a lot in training people on clinical work so that instead of us handing them what they should know or what they should say, we make them go through the thought process that they'd be going through if we, their teacher, wasn't standing right next to them and they were just doing this on their own. But I want to ask you, because Kevin, when you're in a clinical situation, especially with a young person, a teen or a young adult, there's some buy-in to your role as someone who asks questions and asks someone to rethink. In a business setting, often that can be seen as like a gotcha, right? I'm asking you this question as if there's a multiple, a multitude of right answers, but there's only one right answer and I want to hear it. Um, or I'm asking this question, as soon as you answer it, we're both going to see what an idiot you are for what you said before. So what are ways, and Sharon, if you use this method, I'd like to hear from you too, because you, what, you're often having these conversations with people in which they have not bought into your clinical role in their life first. What are some ways we can ask those questions without people feeling like we are trying to show them up for being wrong? Yeah. I mean, we, I work with a lot of legislators. Oh, they love to be shown to be wrong. That's perfect. <laughs> no. And they always, 
need to be right. Um, it's very important. <laughs> but what that's I, a core identity for them is being I, right. It is. <laughs> and not all of them. That's not true. But um, I really try to understand their self-interest. And I find that that's really helpful. Instead of starting where I want someone to be, I start from where they are and then try to find some commonality. So, because I think coming into a lot of these conversations, there's this dichotomous thinking. So it's, and um, for people who are like really held on to these beliefs, right? They're like all, it's all black and white thinking. It's like all this or all that, all good, all bad. And so what I tried, and we get this sometimes when we come in, people think coming in to talk to someone who's really, you know, hanging on to climate change denial or against renewable energy and we then are perceived as coming in. We're the 100% clean energy. We want to change everything right now. So what I try to do is just, and as Kevin was saying too, to disarm them. In a way, it's not so threatening anymore. So immediately try to kind of dispel that myth, which I think they're thinking like, oh, we're not the 100% clean energy people. We're just looking for like a small. So instead, so it's not this polarized anymore it's somewhere in the middle which kind of throws people off a little bit because they're 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 over here so and then we try to I try to find a connection with them as this kind of what Kevin was talking about where can we find something to agree on and so I grew up in a rural area and a lot of times I'm talking to rural legislators or people in rural areas so I try to connect personally around something there and then find something that they're concerned about in their community that they're, and that's their self-interest. So it's about jobs or whatever, and then start sharing about that is my concern too, and how we can kind of then start coming, massaging that a little bit and coming to some point of agree. And we may not, and we won't, and leave, knowing that we're not going to leave agreeing on all of it, but um that's sort of the approach I try to take. That's good, Sharon. I think I think what you said that really spoke to me was this idea of what I call accurate empathy. I think when you can join with someone and empathize with them and say, I understand how you feel because there was this one time when I, so appropriate self-disclosure is one option, right? Yeah. It's say that, oh no, I felt that way too. When I first heard about say renewable energy or this other concept, like that was my take on it too until- you know, then I saw this lecture by so-and-so and da 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 and I start questioning. I was like, man, like perhaps blah, blah, blah. So really just being humble, right? In that regard, but also using what I call accurate empathy and using a lot of feeling statements. And like, I, I felt that way. I can totally understand why you would feel that way. There was this one time and then disclosing, you know, from your own perspective, that really does disarm someone and says, huh, this person's human. And yet we can disagree on the topic and find something in the middle because they don't have another agenda or something that they're trying to call me out on, so to speak. Yeah, that's perfect, yeah. One of the things that I was um, hoping to talk to Andy about in clinical medicine is often I will want to suggest um, a treatment for something, like a blood pressure medicine, just for example. And one of the ways that I'll try to disarm my patient is by asking a question that would be really useful for me to have the answer to as well. It's not disingenuous, but to say, um, what don't you like? about the idea of going on a medicine for this before they've told me they don't like it or you know what would some disadvantages be gotcha. to doing this thing and it's because yeah. it's useful for me to know the possible pushback up front but mm -hmm. also because they're expecting me to say 
what would be great about it? Or even they're really expecting me often as a doc to not even ask a question, to just be like, this is what you need to do. This is what's good about it and steamroll over any possible concerns. Yep. And that accurate empathy is my ability to say, I, I do think that there are things about this that wouldn't be as good. Yep. <laughs> right. And, and for often for people who've never taken a medicine daily to go to towards taking a medicine daily, that changes a fundamental identity issue. Uh, it often makes us feel like someone who is now sick or someone who is now old. You know, the parameter is not, do you take a medicine or don't take your medicine? But because we have those associations, people can really feel like their fundamental identity has been attacked, that they use the, well, I'm not on any medicines and so-and-so in my life is on a bunch of medicines and they don't seem well. So if I join their camp, basically, I'm losing that piece of me that feels healthy, that feels vibrant, that feels whatever. And so by getting the person to talk about that, not to say that I'm going to be like, well, great, let me tell you how you're 100% wrong. Sharon, like you said, that that incremental change, it's not the words you use, but I think what you're talking about, about saying to someone, hey, I'm interested in small changes. And the other thing that really struck me, Kevin, when you said humility, mm -hmm. I often will remind people, you are an expert in you, in your yeah. life, in your parameters, in your experiences. I'm an expert in different strategies to solve this problem. And so I'd like to suggest to you the ones that I think have the most likelihood in general of being successful, but I know about populations and you know about you. Mm -hmm. And that way, when I can meet someone on equal footing, I'm an expert in this thing that we need for this conversation. You're an expert in this thing that we need for this conversation. When we bring our expertise together, what's in the center of the Venn diagram about yeah. what's acceptable to you and what I think might actually work. Oh, that's good. I think what you're getting at too, Debbie, is we never mentioned this word, but it's implied. And that is you find that when people have a preference, it tends to be more tenuous, right? We tend to be able to have more leeway in influencing them. But when it's a part of their value system, that's where a lot of these strategies are important because our value system and our beliefs are two separate things, right? Values tend to reflect my assumptions and how that interacts with the world as a part of who I am and my identity versus beliefs are more just kind of assumptions that I've picked up along the way and can be influenced with the right data, right? But when we talk about value though, I think that's where many of the strategies that you, me and Sharon have discussed are really vital. Humility, accurate empathy, having someone join with them with similar value systems and then that requires us to be flexible in many ways in the way we approach the people that we interact with as well. So Bruce asked a really good question on this exact topic. What's the dis distinction between beliefs and values? And I, I want to delineate that further. I just took notes on what you said, Kevin, and that's great. I just want to think about it more so that when I'm in a conversation with someone in a work setting who's really struggling with something, how I figure out if it's a belief, which I heard you say that can be influenced with data um, or other people's influence, like someone I really admire handled that differently versus a value system. Yeah. Well, I think what I would say simply to, to, to make it simple would be, you know, values tend to reflect um, my assumptions that are based upon core beliefs as part of who I am and my identity. So a value tends to be more static and stable, right? It's something of, it's who I am. I'm drawing a line in the proverbial sand on this topic, right? It's a part of who I am. I'm an African-American male. I'm a psychologist, right? I'm a person of faith. Like these are all things that are part of my identity and value. So despite data, 
it's really hard to chisel away at those things because that's something that I've grown as part of my schema over time that I firmly believe despite data, right? Versus preferences or beliefs or assumptions are things that I think are true, but they tend to be more hypotheses, right? So it's this idea that they're testable. And if you present me with the right data, right? then I could be amenable to changing that, right? I could possibly say, well, you know what? I thought this for the longest time, quick, funny story. Like I always grew, I grew up and not until I was in my twenties, you know, I thought the, the row, row, row your boat song said, because I was around a bunch of people who weren't enunciating properly, apparently, but I always thought the song said life is butter dream, like butter, like spread butter. <laughs> like people I met, Which is a good dream. That's a good dream. Right, butter makes everything better, right? Can I get an amen? So yeah, yeah. but I was presented with, wait a second, what did you say? And they said it to me and laughed. And I said, oh, well, I was wrong. That's not a value. That was an assumption based on something that I learned. <laughs> but it wasn't just a preference. You weren't like, I heard it both ways and I like it better this way. Like right now I have too. a preference for butter. Indeed. But in that song, right, okay, right. so that's helpful. And then I was I was thinking while you were talking because I I would have said, okay, I have religious beliefs, but I have heard a lot of people, as you just did, say I'm a person of faith, and right. faith is deeper. I wonder if we might use this as a litmus test and test me out here that I would say that my value system is mm -hmm. something I care about passing on to people I mentor or my children. Mm -hmm. My beliefs, it would be interesting or fun for me if they took it on, but I don't feel strongly about the need to pass it down to other people. Right. Unless I am dogmatic, which is part of the original conversation, Sharon's nodding her head. Yeah. yeah. Dogmatic and contentious and just think that my beliefs, which are not in fact steeped in reality, are values. <laughs> but, but some people certainly have beliefs that they certainly have values that are not, that are that can be proven untrue. Correct. Right? So it, yep. it's not to say that values can't be tested. Right. But when you have something that rises to the level that you want to pass it on to the to other people you care for and mentor, mm -hmm. then I think that is one indication that it's risen to a value system. Right. Okay. One of the things that I've around this topic that I've found helpful um, is bringing somebody with me who shares a similar value or belief mm -hmm. and who can also see, so they share that. So in our work, it could be a person of faith or a farmer uh, who's, you know, installed solar energy and they share, you know, I think there's stereotypes about what my farmers might believe or whatever. So we're talking to a legislator. We may bring a farmer who's done this and they can speak from their experience or someone from their community. We often will bring or someone who's bringing jobs to their community. So it isn't just us who maybe they can't relate to me personally, but they can relate to this other person. And then that starts to shift like, oh, I can keep my values, uh, but I can shift, I guess what you're saying, beliefs, right, about this a little bit differently. Uh, so we've, we have found that to be That's helpful. a really useful strategy. 
Okay, before I summarize the 12 strategies I've written down, <laughs> or at least a few of them, I'd like to get to some questions. So anybody who's listening and watching, uh, we have a couple of questions, but if you have more, go ahead and put them in the chat. So this one is great. Have you ever walked away because there's no common ground? Yes. Well, sure. I mean, in our, I don't know that I walked away, but I think I, I've said, I know I've said, I see that we're not agreeing on anything here and I, I agree to disagree <laughs> and thank you for your time, you know, and, and walked away in that way because there are some people that, but I don't believe that's really walking away because I always think that people can't unhear something. And sometimes it takes multiple times to hear something and in different ways. And so I feel like in our work, we have just presented this situation, which they're saying they're not hearing, they're not listening, but they can't not hear it and not unhear it. So I feel like it might be a foundation building that has to happen to change people's worldview or the way they think about something. And it's not going to happen the very first time they hear it. And sometimes not the seventh. I mean, marketers will seventh, tell you that people or, need 17 touches with yeah, your company before absolutely. they will purchase, for example. Right. And so what I'm hearing you say is you feel like if you end that conversation on a respectful, mm -hmm. not, not a lie, we did not find any area of the disagreement you left yeah. that door open in their mind, even if it doesn't leave the door open to what you were hoping to move forward with them right then. Yeah, absolutely. And staying respectful and not making it personal allows them to at least feel that they weren't disrespected. Because I think once someone feels disrespected, then they definitely are going to shut off. I mean, I know personally, I feel that way. So I think keeping it to that level of, uh, but again, I feel like we've made progress in some way because I got to have that conversation. I mean, a long time, you know, years ago, we weren't even allowed in the door with some politicians. They didn't, wouldn't even take a meeting. The fact that we got a meeting, that means that they are listening or hearing what I'm saying. So it's interesting to me because we have, if we're disrespected, it sort of reinforces our value system. Like yeah. I should reject anyone from that different value system because sure. look how they treated me. Absolutely. And it's much easier to other them and say they're yeah. in that group of people who are bad. I am good. So obviously mm -hmm. I reject what they have to say. Right. Kevin, yeah. would you both in your own practice, but also if you were advising someone, would you say that there are points at which their the value systems that two people have are far enough apart that walking away is the right thing to do absolutely and that can be mutually agreed upon right it doesn't have to be contentious in any way you know of course the the main thing i think about is my clinical work which is a different shift but it's still relevant and you know i always like to tell people that when it comes to therapeutic change we run into roadblocks all the time with people who you prescribe the right approaches. You know that it will work. You know how long it will take. You know the homework that's involved. You know what they need to confront. You know what emotions they need to change, like those things. And we always give them the riddle, Debbie, it's how many psychologists does it take to screw in a light bulb? Well, one, but the light bulb has to want to change. So I say that to say <laughs> that ultimately we have to part with clients and patients on a regular basis because they're just not following through. Some of it is because of values, but most of the time is just a, a belief that I can't change. 
right? It's a belief that my distress is so intense that I'm not willing to be uncomfortable temporarily to have long-term freedom. And that's just- And that I don't know who I would be if I didn't have this. (laughs) Indeed. Yes. There's a question from Shelly that I actually want to take myself because it's something that I do a lot. She said, do you find value in looking at the future effects on children to be a strategy to provide as examples to leadership to get them to make a change? And what I wanted to say about this, Shelly, is that often, and there's some good research to back this up, the most successful way to get an adult to change their behavior is to convince them that the thing you want them to do leads to a goal they already have. So they already want what's best for children. I'm sure there are some people who don't, but let's assume everyone in this conversation does. Then my job is not to convince them that we should be doing the right thing for kids. It's to help them understand that the thing, the change I'm suggesting leads to that in a really useful, obvious, clear-cut kind of way. And that's true, actually, the medicine example I gave. If I want Kevin to start taking a high blood pressure medicine, if I tell him it's because I want his blood pressure to be lower, he may never have really had that goal. He've never really have thought to himself, boy, I hope every time I go to the doctor, my, my top blood pressure number is under 120. But he maybe has thought about dancing at his child's wedding someday in the future, right? That's something that he held his baby and imagined, and he's held that as part of his value system for years. And so if I can help him understand, I already know that that's really important to him. And I can say, listen, I know that this is really important to you. I'd like to, if it's okay, show you some data to help you see how taking this medicine once a day, and I understand your objections to it, makes it much more likely that you're going to be able to have that dance than if you don't take a medicine each day. And so tying it to a goal that someone already has is sometimes a great way to get them to navigate change. But if they say, but that blood pressure you're showing me, you know, 158 over 96, that's what my mom's was every day of her life, you know, that I saw when she was in the hospital and she lived to be 93. I don't want to touch my blood pressure. Then my strategy isn't going to work because they don't believe that this medicine, that lowering their blood pressure will get them to that wedding. That's one of the things I wanted us to address. And I want to take one more question before we go to our sum up. So Darisha, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, asks, what does integration look like when people do start to change? Have you ever had folks who are who flip to giving up in an argument or get discouraged, feel defeated because their core values, their way of seeing things has been challenged? Like for an example, fine, I'll take the medicine. I guess I'm just old and sick now. So Sharon, have you had somebody who says, um, fine, I'll, I'll give up on our whole way of life and I'll destroy coal country to put one solar panel on my house? You know, who says who says that they'll do the thing you want, but that their attitude is because I accept that it's going to destroy my sense of self, my belief in others, and my how I see my future. I can't think of a really great example of that. I think more often we'll see that they'll minimize the impact of something. So, oh yeah, okay, fine. We'll be okay with some solar coming into our community. It's not really going to do anything anyhow. And so- I, and I I've bet seen you'll that take sh- that foothold, right? Yes, because I see <laughs> that as chinking away at the armor, right? Yeah, it's incremental change. And I've seen that change in like climate deniers over time too, where it started out to be like climate change doesn't exist. And then the argument went to like, well, it exists, but it's not man-made. All right, well, maybe there's some impact. So it's like, it's it's morphing in some way. And I and I've seen more of that in our work that 
they don't think it's has an important impact and then just allowing it it's insignificant but then recognizing allowing it to come in a little bit um yeah so that's sort of the progression i've seen mostly Okay. So Kevin, I think it would make more sense that this is something we would see because we hold some power in our clinical relationships with people and they may find it easier to give in, but, but not actually accept that there's a problem in the first place, just say what they want us to hear. Or, or maybe they have an adult, adult family member in the room who's pressing them really hard. And so they say, fine, I'll do the thing you wanted, but I still disagree that there's a problem here to begin with, or that this is the right way to handle it. What do you do in that setting? Well, I think the good news for us in those situations, it usually turns out well. Because, <laughs> because it works anyway? <laughs> well, because if I had a dollar for every single client or patient I've worked with, Debbie, that said, quote, it wasn't as bad as I thought, <laughs> very wealthy, right? Because I think I call that logic catastrophizing. This idea, well, I'll just give up like Darisha said. It's like, oh, I'll just take the bed. I'm just old and sick now. Well, that tells me that that's a thinking trap that they have that's not really based on evidence. So I think that if we can be flexible and present them with, okay, well, let's see in increments what this looks like. And let's see if the things that are important to you, let's see if they change at all. And oh, by the way, the people who love them usually have really good observations of their change. Then that gives us all the data that we need to say, flips hair. So how did that work for you? Right. And they're, oh, actually, I felt better. Terrific. What do you think now? Like, what's the evidence suggest? Right, exactly. What does the evidence yeah. suggest that, you know, maybe this medication is effective or this technique does in fact work, that your anxiety does in fact go down? And, and you like, did well, still go apple picking. You didn't have to take to the bed <laughs> right. when you did this thing. And Darisha, uh, I think one of the things that's hard for us is we want people to agree with us. We really, you know, yeah, everybody true. wants to be seen as being right and convince someone. But if they're willing to do the test, that is better than a flat out denial. If they're willing to put in one solar panel or try one therapy or do one thing differently, then they are at least testing it. Even if they're looking at it, like my seventh grade son looked at his science fair, this will never work. I'll do the project, but it'll obviously never work. Right. So before I go to my last question for both of you, I just want to sum up, we've talked about, and I'm going to send out an email with a lot of these, but a couple of strategies that I think are really useful. And I'm going to use a couple of words that you all didn't, but Kevin, you talked about, first of all, how do we disarm? And we had several strategies for disarming someone where you can see up front that in the meeting or the conversation that they're resistant. You talked about don't blame and mm -hmm. do normalize. And right. you actually also talked about, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a word I'm not sure is a word, legitimizing. Mm -hmm. You didn't just normalize other people might feel that way too, or I have met other people who do, or that's an, an you said that's actually a reasonable way based on your experiences, that's a very legitimate way to look at things. Right. And that helps someone really feel seen. And to that point, you talked about accurate empathy, which mm -hmm. is better than, I see that you are angry. Right. It's hard to be angry. I'm sorry, you're angry, <laughs> yep. you know, which is a very kind of Sesame Street way of showing empathy <laughs> and, and has its place, especially when you have no idea why the person is angry. It is better than nothing. Right. But you talked about using a little self-disclosure, if you choose to, you talked about naming specific and, and then again, legitimizing their feelings through your empathy, right. not just naming it. And then Sharon, you talked about using surprising people by being completely open to incremental change. Yeah. And I talked about that strategy. We all talked about humility. And I talked specifically about asking the opposite of what someone thinks you're going to ask instead of like, 
well, don't you think it's a great idea saying, can you help me understand some reasons why it might not be a great idea? I this like I one. found works mm-hmm. especially well with my own teenagers of note. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then for strategies, once, once we've actually, it's become clear, someone has voiced their denial of this as an issue. Two strategies I particularly want to point out is at the clouds level, we talked about understanding three things. Is this a preference? You're probably not even hearing about it, or it's a throwaway comment if it's a preference. Is it a belief, which is something that I hold to be true, but I know it's an assumption and I'm willing to, if if I see something that changes that, either someone I really trust or data I trust, I could change it or has it integrated into my value system? And if it has, Kevin pointed out that that means it's much more stable and static. Mm -hmm. And I brought up the idea that maybe you could see it because it's something that someone feels is important to pass on to others, people they care about, and instill in them the same values. And that once something's at the value system level, that's when we really struggle as leaders to help them understand. And so the two things we talked about that I want to point out again is one, the idea of meeting them saying, here's my expertise. Here's your expertise. Where do we cross where, you know, where can we find some common ground? Sharon talked about that. Kevin talked about that. I talked about that. And then the other idea of bringing in someone who shares their value system in a way that they already agree, they share that value system, but shares a piece of my value system. And they're the bridge. They share a value system about this topic with me but they share a large part of their values and identity with this other person and allowing them, the person who's already been convinced to be a bridge. And we can certainly use that in most work environments. So the last question I wanna ask both of you is, when you've spent time at the front of my office, there's a little dent in the drywall behind the front desk that perfectly matches my forehead (laughs) <laughs> oh no. From when we finally had COVID vaccines to offer our most at risk patients, and yet some people still didn't want them. And I would use all of my strategies and skills, but then I would go to the back behind the front desk and just <laughs> a couple of times. And I unfortunately made a little bit of a dent, and my staff made a little drawing. And yeah. Anyway, <laughs> instead of that, when you have been in conflict with someone who really sees the world very differently than you do for a while, and it, it's wearing you down. What are some, something you do to lighten your life or bring a little joy to shake that off? So Sharon, what do you do yeah. when you've had about enough with people telling you this isn't even a thing? Yeah. I mean, after I rant about it a little bit with a colleague, I <laughs> try to. Don't disclose the to... value. Don't, don't underestimate <laughs> the value of ranting for sure. Yeah, exactly. Commiserating. Um, I, I try to reconnect with why I'm doing this work and for me, that's started out with climate change and then talking about the solution. And so, but my reason for caring about climate change is my love um, and my value system is about being in nature and, and that. So I, I try to get outside and connect um, with being outside. And, and for me, that, that just helps me relax and just kind of let go and, and just think about what's important. And also to connect um, on a professional level with colleagues who inspire me and also connect me back to the work and why we're doing it. Because I think sometimes talking to some of these people can derail you and make you stay and focus in this negative space and 
just kind of need to keep going back um, and being re-inspired. Thank you. Dr. Chapman, what do you do when you've had just about enough? Uh, I think everything Sharon said, and the one thing I would add to that is, you know, I always like to tell people when I get the opportunity, like now, Debbie, that like decreasing negative emotionality is not increasing positive emotionality. So I have to be very proactive and on the offensive to pursue enhancing positive emotions. So, you know, my spiritual life is important. Exercise is essential. Spending time with my family is essential. Drinking coffee is essential. Watching my sports teams play is essential. So all the things that bring me joy um, and contentment and all the positive emotionality is I try to get in that space as much as I can and, and reiterate what Sharon said and to, you know, realize why I'm doing the work, but also practicing gratitude is so important for me personally. And finding the silver lining is also very important for me, reframes and things like that. That is such a good one, Kevin. I like that. Thank you. It's so so true. instead of sharing my own, I'm going to share something that, that Bruce dropped in the chat for us. He said there's a Zulu word that was taught to him by someone named Dr. Susan David, and I'm going to see if I can pronounce it. Swao Bono, Bona, Swao Bona, perhaps, S-W-A-U-B-O-N-A, which means I see you. And by seeing you, I bring you into being. We talked at the very beginning, I asked Sharon, what are some signs that somebody's denying? And she talked about body language and she said, and it makes me wanna know why. Who is this person and why is this an obstacle for them? And if we can keep that question of why is this an obstacle for them and tie that to why our purpose in the change we're trying to make, I think that there is a wealth of strategies in there. Thank you everyone for your time and your attention. I really appreciate you. At the end of October, we're gonna talk about, even though we often talk about needing resilience in the face of failure, we don't talk enough about needing resilience in the face of success. I hope I'll see you on October 31st. Take care everyone.